and welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. And I'm Stephanie Cox. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Today we are covering the Senate hearing titled Time Change, Abuse in Foster Care, A Deeper Look. It's hosted by the Subcommittee on Human Rights and the Law, part of the Senate Committee on the Judiciary. The hearing will be presided over by uh, Senator John Ossoff, a Democrat from Virginia. Some of the witnesses include... From Georgia. From, from Georgia, excuse me. Um, some of the witnesses include uh, Dr. Samantha Saul, a supervisor of Child Sex Trafficking Recovery Services team. She's for the, that's for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, we'll also hear from Ernell Winfrey. She's the Deputy District Attorney for the Special Victims Division. The, of the Human Trafficking and Child Sex, Sexual Exploitation Unit in Fulton County, Georgia. Next, we'll also hear from Brian Atkinson, the staff attorney at the Cease Clinic, which deals with sexual exploitation. That's at the Georgia School of Law, the University of Georgia School of Law. And finally, we'll also hear from Tiffany McLean Camp, a 19-year-old with experience in the foster care system. We don't know if she's been through this you know child exploitation like we're talking about and this is a live hearing so we don't know who we'll get to see in our broadcast but those are all available um, online but what we're seeing here is some kind of emphasis perhaps on sexual exploitation within the system at least by uh, by account according to the, you know who the witnesses are um, we do know that of, of the children who've been investigated within the foster care system and found to be maltreated, 7% of those have been found to be subject to sexual abuse. Um, there is a phenomenon of sexual exploitation, even child sex trafficking, intersecting in some way with the foster care system as well, which sounds horrific. That's right. Yeah, the FBI actually found that um, uh, uh, about 40 or so percent of children who were who are who've been recovered from the child sex trafficking industry were a part of the foster care system and in LA they found that it was something like 80 percent Wow incredible that was in 2013 and you've got to also take note that a lot of times understandably these kids are not just facing one form of maltreatment it's it may be sexual abuse or exploitation but it may also be emotional abuse, psychological abuse, physical abuse, um, neglect. And there's a phenomenon also reported that within the foster care system, children are, uh, are given prescription drugs, uh, prescription psychotropics, between 4 and 5% more than children who are not within the foster care system in Medicaid. That's right. We actually had a hearing on this about a week or two ago that dealt with yeah, abuse in the foster care system. And we heard from a young woman who was in the foster care system for about four years. And during that time, she was over-prescribed over her medication. She, um, she, had, she, she said she had t trouble walking and she felt sluggish. And, and that was on, right? And without much of a uh, network to support her. So there's this phenomenon that we know from previous hearings and reports that are out there, even the agencies themselves admitting that there's, you know, caseworkers are overburdened, um, their resources are stretched thin, too far too thin, and these kids really don't see their caseworkers uh, in many cases 
enough to provide that sense of continuity or care uh, that they're so desperately missing. Um, we also heard from that that lady. She was about 19, I believe. So she, you know, she was out of the system, but she was a great example of one of these other things that's been reported, which is that when kids get aged out of the system, they really it's a very abrupt end and there's no continuity of care after that. Um, so they're actually subject to much higher rates of homelessness, psychological issues and you know, unemployment after they leave the system. So it's really got to be addressed. Right, and you have, you know, children are vulnerable. You know, teenagers that are freshly out of the foster care system are also vulnerable. Um, yes, actually, the, the uh, the children who are most vulnerable to neglect are the youngest, infants and very young children within the foster care system. Mm. And also um, those with developmental disabilities. Uh. There's this thing called hoteling. Um, so one of the things they'll be talking about today in all likelihood is hoteling, which happens in the, the Georgia Department of Family and Children's Services, also called, also called DFACS, where um, I, I guess about 50 to 70 children are currently housed in defaxes, offices, or even hotels, actual hotel rooms. And in, often, in many cases, these are children with developmental disabilities or some kind of severe trauma um, that makes them, uh, uh, I guess, I guess some, some of the foster families just don't want to take them in. Right. And so they're receiving 24-7 you know, care and attention from defax employees directly, oh, it sounds wow. like. Okay, and so another issue here uh, is the lack of training that some people have pointed to as an area of concern is a lack of training both for staff and for foster care parents. Mm -hmm. that, that is really something that may need more attention. Sure. Especially in cases like that, I guess. And you know, it's, it's something that can be kind of demoralizing in some, in some cases, the working in, these, uh, in this field, you know, these social workers aren't always paid the most yeah. Um, and the the work can be, like I said, demoralizing. Where you know you're you're working with children who've been through abuse or, or homes where there's drug addiction, mm. and you know children with trauma. It's it can be very challenging work, and so you know it takes the most dedicated people to you know yeah, handle this kind of intense work, and that's that's one of the reasons why um, there's there's problems in these foster care systems and in different social work industries in general. Yeah, and of course the states, various states have applied various rules of their own and, and laws of their own to try to address the problems. It, it is the Child Protective Services, a national agency that really investigates um, allegations of abuse and neglect. I want to look back at the history a little of the, of the way that sure. the laws have been applied and the ways that lawmakers have tried to approach this issue. Um, there was a bit of a shift back in 1997 um, from the law kind of uh, inferred or stipulated in some way that uh, families should be kept together as much as possible, almost at all costs in some sense. Mm. Um, or at least that was the way that it was interpreted in the courts a lot of times. Uh, but this law came in in, the 19, in 1997 um, called the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which shifted the focus, and, and that was a bit of a pivotal point because it, it changed the focus from keeping families together 
to uh, focus on the child and less priority on the parents and parents' rights. So now with this law, parents had a sort of end date to how long their neglect or abuse could go on, and then they would forfeit their parental rights uh, over to the state, I guess. Um, and so now we, we do really think of the state as being custodians of these children, being their parents in some way. So it's even more concerning when we think about um, the issues that are cropping up here. Right, and then looking back into the where the foster care system comes from to begin with, it started in the 1800s or sort of uh, quasi-foster care system when there were all these children in the New York City slums um, that were actually sent to foster homes across the country. You know, tens of thousands of children in the early 1800s. They, you know, they were on the streets. They didn't have. They were homeless, um, and it wasn't a great way to grow up. So, they created this system, and that 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 became the the yeah that's that's that created the basis for the modern foster care system. Wow, and you know a lot of these issues also in terms of parental rights do kind of plug into a broader discussion around parental rights that is quite active today as well. Um, of course, we're just going to be focusing on this one aspect within the foster care system, but we did hear at the last hearing that we aired on this topic um, from parents and one particular mother who lost her two-year-old um, to abuse and neglect within the system. But Next up, we're going to tune into today's hearing, which is happening right now, which is titled Abuse in Foster Care, A Deeper Look. It's a Senate committee hearing, subcommittee on human rights and the law, and that's chaired by Senator John Ossoff, a Democrat from Georgia. Let's tune in. Welcome back. We are tuned in to the Senate hearing titled Time Change, Abuse in Foster Care, A Deeper Look. We're actually waiting for the hearing to start. Um, the, you know, sometimes these hearings don't always start on time. Right. This, this hearing does, is hosted by the Subcommittee on Human Rights and the Law. It's part of the Senate Committee on Ju the, the Judiciary. It's presided over by Senator John Ossoff, a Democrat from Georgia. and. Hopefully, if we get to the witnesses, we'll hear from uh, about four different people. Um, these witnesses are set to testify today. We might not hear from all of them. In fact, we probably won't because we, we'll, we'll start the, the news show at around noon. But we'll, the, the witnesses they'll be looking at are Dr. Samantha Saul, a supervisor of child sex trafficking recovery services. This is a person who helps train people to, yeah, help children who've been in the child sex trafficking industry recover from that traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. We'll also hear from Ernell Winfrey, a Deputy District Attorney of the Special Victims Division at the Human Trafficking and Child Exploitation Unit in Fulton County, Georgia. This is, um, yeah, a, a Deputy District Attorney who helps prosecute some of these horrifying cases in the child sex trafficking industry. Um, yeah, and we did actually cover uh, an earlier Senate hearing on the foster care system, and that was um, focusing on some of the insights from various family court judges. 
we, we did hear from Judge uh, non I Sims and others saying that they felt there was a an attitude almost system-wide of uh, prioritizing statistics over safety um, and that a lack of, they worried about having a lack of information or the wrong information come through to them in order to make their judgments. So it's, it looks like there are issues at various levels here, but we did hear earlier um, testimony from various people on this topic. Right, and we, in, in another hearing on October 30th, we heard from um, uh, a woman who actually, her daughter was killed in the foster care system. It's a, it's a horrifying story. This, this, the woman was arrested and you know, rightfully her daughter was put into foster care, two-year-old daughter. She, the woman knew um, qualified foster care people. Her, her sister-in-law and her brother-in-law were both certified, but they, they, she petitioned the child care services in Georgia to have them become the caretakers, but uh, the, the, the child was ended, ended, up, ended up with her biological father, who happened to be dating a woman that was using uh, methamphetamines, and the, the child um, was found dead with blunt, blunt trauma to the back of the head. And this was after the woman, uh, the, the child's mother, reported the situation numerous times to the department um, in there in Georgia, and they basically ignored her. Yeah, the lack of communication in that particular story, I hope, is not um, you know system-wide, but it does sound a strong alarm for these kinds of issues and trust within the system. Um, we do know that there's potential for, uh, as hard as these uh, facts may be about abuse within the system, there's also the potential for under-reporting and that that these children may not, we may not know the full extent of it because of this lack of trust within the system as well. And just the nature of it, of it all. That's abuse right. Within the home. Yeah. That's right. And so this, this hearing is going to focus on the, it, it looks like it's going to focus on the child sex trafficking industry and holding it accountable, you know, getting rid of it. Um, but, you know, actually Congress doesn't give us much details about what the hearings will be in advance. Um, so, you know, in, in Georgia, actually between 2018 and 2022, at least uh, 1,790 children were reported missing by the Department of Family and Children's Services there in Georgia, also called DFACS, um, and that's according to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Incredible. This right. calls to mind, you know, footage from that, that film. Um, what was the name? Sound of Freedom. Sound of Freedom, yeah. Right. <laughs> of, of children just getting snatched off the streets, you know, just going about their day, mm -hmm. and the parent turns around. I don't know how it happens here, but um, that's a worthwhile film. Yeah, yeah. It, it tells the story of Tim Ballard. I mean, you guys might remember it from earlier in the year this past summer. It kind of blew up. It was in the, the papers a lot. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it was about... Um, Tim Ballard, who's basically a hero in his organization, Operation Underground Railroad, this is an organization that conducts sting operations on child sex trafficking rings. And they've rescued thousands of children from these rings. And they, they go in and they pose as customers of these industries. And then they just rake in the arrests and take these things out. Yeah, so I'm not sure right at this point how 
the foster care system interacts with that kind of industry, uh, but you can imagine that these children are the most vulnerable, or among the most vulnerable. They've potentially lost, completely lost contact with their families, their home base, uh, all their community. A lot of these kids being moved around place to place may not have a community at all. Mm. And they don't have anyone necessarily really advocating for them. So it's just horrific to think what could be done. And I, I do hope we, we find some good solid um, recommendations from these people who are up close to these issues and, and working on them every day. Yeah, that's right. You know, Tim Ballard actually calls the child sex trafficking industry, one of the fastest growing illicit industries yes. in the world. And, and it's quite high within the U.S., if I'm not mistaken. It's quite um, alarming, alarmingly large of an, of an industry. It makes a lot of money here. Right, yeah. And, and he was saying, um, or I guess, you know, yeah, it's just this really massive um, thing here. But at the same time, we, most people aren't aware of it or we're just becoming aware of it through films like Sound of Freedom in the past few years or so, but it's not a new thing. Um, and so I think one of the things, one of the, one of the things this kind of hearing will do is educate people and make people aware of the problem that it is a legitimate problem. And, and you know, it's actually a bipartisan issue. This, con this senator is a, is a Democrat and, um, you know, Hopefully, it becomes something that that both houses of the Congress take on. And we did see. So this hearing is in Georgia, and the last one that you mentioned was also in Georgia. But it's interesting to note that there is variation in the amount of reported abuse between states. So according to Statista, in 2021, California had the highest number of reported abuses within the foster care system at 19,830. And the next, Texas, was quite a long distance away at 10,761. We also saw near the top of the list, Florida, Illinois, and Indiana. It's just interesting to note and wonder what is behind mm. that variation within the, the country. Mm. Yeah, and to, to add to that, in, the, in 2013, the FBI found that 60% of child sex trafficking victims uh, who, who were recovered from the, from the, from the trade um, were children who were once in foster care. Oh, 60%. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I said 40% in the first part of our show. It was actually 60%. And in Los Angeles, that number is up, was up to 80%. Again, that was in 2013, but it speaks to that, that disparity, something you know, in California there. Yes, incredible. The okay. New York Times found that about 85% of commercially sexually exploited youth had been part of the foster care. So that's even more. These numbers are hard to track. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and who else did we hear from in the, there were two previous uh, Senate hearings on, on related to the foster care system. One was about the courts and one was just the experiences of these people who've been through the system. Yeah, I know exactly. Yeah, um, you mentioned about um, children who have perhaps mental disabilities or other types of disabilities and how they're treated within the system. I know in one of the previous hearings we heard about how um, there was real resistance within the system, pushing back, asking not to take those people. There was, as you know, they were told there was just no, not enough resources, but also asking if they could just detain them um, 
uh, you know, as the judge who spoke, termed right. it like lock them up. Yeah. And I don't. She asked if we can. She they were they were talking about putting certain foster children who couldn't who 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 weren't being taken into homes right. into prisons. Actual prisons. Yeah. Oh, okay. To hold them. That was a proposal oh. in, I guess, in Georgia that didn't go through, but it just speaks to, I guess, the desperation of their, their system there. Yeah, that particular judge was quite incensed, understandably, by that, hear, by her hearing that, uh, that request. Uh, but That's right. And we'll, we'll continue our coverage on the Senate hearing titled Time Change, Abuse in the Foster Care System, A Deeper Look, after the break. Welcome back. We are continuing our coverage on the Senate hearing titled Time Change and Abuse in Foster Care, A Deeper Look. It's hosted by the Subcommittee on Human Rights and the Law of the Senate Committee on the Judiciary, presided over by John Ossoff, a Democrat from Georgia. Some of the witnesses we'll hopefully hear from going forward are um, the, Dr. Samantha Saul, a supervisor of Child Sex Trafficking Recovery Services team for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, there's also Brian Atkinson, a staff attorney at the Wilbanks Child Endangerment and the Sexual Exploitation Clinic at the University of Georgia Law School. And this is part of a series of hearings on the foster care system in our country, specifically in Georgia, where Congressman uh, Senator John Ossoff is from that will focus on, it looks like, on child sex trafficking and um, how the foster care system relates to that. Unfortunately, the, you know, children are vulnerable to begin with. Fo children in the foster care system are even more vulnerable and um, people in the child sex trafficking industry target vulnerable children. So there's, there's these, these targets for um, these child exploitation people. Yeah, when you think about it, these children um, have come from neglect or maltreatment in some way in order to get into the foster care system and then they don't have a solid community around them, parents, caregivers watching over them, and they're, they're certainly vulnerable to um, predators of varying stripes. Um, but we heard in a previous hearing Senator John Ossoff saying that um, DFACS, the Georgia body, does initiate timely investigations into almost 90% of the cases of abuse and neglect or the allegations of abuse and neglect, but that it, he said, it systematically fails to address the risks that are identified and the safety concerns associated with these children. So there's According to the senator, there is actually a systematic fault, systemic-wide fault here. Um. <clears throat> and and one of the one of the issues, one of the reasons there's there are problems with the foster care system to begin with is that you know a lot of the caseworkers in the foster care system, you know, they're social workers. They're not paid like Wall Street bankers, and they're working with children that come from you know traumatic backgrounds, oftentimes you know from abuse, like you're saying, or you know. There was drug abuse in the home where they came from, and so it's it's an emotionally loaded 
job that you're not getting paid well, so it's hard to attract and keep employees. Mm -hmm. And these, the, the employees that do stick around are often overburdened and just, yeah, burnt out yeah. from this sort of work. There must be a lot of heartache on all sides within this very strained situation. You know, there must be a way forward though as well. We're about to hear from uh, one of the testimonies providing, one of the witnesses providing their testimony. Let's tune in. Eight months ago, the subcommittee opened a bipartisan inquiry into the safety and human rights of children in foster care. Because protecting America's most vulnerable children from abuse and neglect is a moral imperative. Please remember, we're talking about the most vulnerable children in the United States and the most vulnerable children in the state of Georgia. Children who have faced abuse, children who have been trafficked, children who have faced neglect and who have been orphaned. For these children here in Georgia, the Georgia Division of Family and Children's Services, or DFACS, is meant to be a sanctuary. But watchdogs, oversight bodies, and advocates have been sounding the alarm for years about alleged systemic failures at DFACS, which receives hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funding each year, and which is subject to federal child welfare standards. According to the Georgia Office of a Child Advocate, or OCA, in 2021, DFACS received reports of failures directly from several local child advocacy centers and from the statewide organization Child Advocacy Centers of Georgia. OCA characterized these reports as evidence of, quote, systemic threats to children who are victims of physical and sexual abuse. The following year, in 2022, OCA issued their own report outlining 15 breakdowns within DFACS, and OCA described them as, quote, systemic, and reported that in all cases they reviewed to produce their investigation, quote, DFACS failed to take adequate steps to respond to allegations of physical and sexual abuse. They went on to say that OCA itself encountered those same systemic failures, quote, consistently throughout the state through OCA's day-to-day -day investigative work. In response to this OCA investigation, Georgia DFACS denied OCA's findings. OCA stood by its report. These allegations of widespread failures that leave Georgia's foster children vulnerable to abuse and neglect demand investigation. In Georgia, as a case study informing our subcommittee's inquiry, will yield crucial insights about threats to the health and safety of foster children nationwide. To date, the subcommittee has interviewed over 100 witnesses and sources and has reviewed thousands of pages of records. The subcommittee has already held two hearings where we have heard from former foster youth, from a Georgia mother whose child was murdered after being placed with unfit caregivers, from experts and practitioners in child welfare law, and from juvenile court judges who interact with children 
in Georgia's foster care system and with Georgia DFACS. In between those hearings, we also discussed analysis conducted by the Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NICMIC, which found that 1,790 children in DFACS care were reported missing to NICMIC between 2018 and 2022. As a reminder, the Federal Preventing Sex Trafficking and Strengthening Families Act, signed into law in 2014, requires state agencies to report a missing child to both law enforcement and to NICMIC within 24 hours of receiving information about a missing child under their care. NICMIC was designated by Congress to serve as the National Clearinghouse on issues relating to missing and exploited children. NICMIC is funded partially by a mandatory federal grant from the Department of Justice and serves as a reporting and case management center for issues related to the prevention of and recovery from child victimization. Our investigation continues today with a third public hearing. We will hear from and about children subjected to the worst forms of abuse, including sex trafficking, exploitation, and sexual abuse. We are tuned in to the Senate hearing titled Time Change, Abuse in Foster Care, A Deeper Look. It's hosted by the Subcommittee on Human Rights and the Law, part of the Senate Committee on the Judiciary, and presided over by Senator John Ossoff, a Democrat from Georgia. That's who we just heard from moments ago. He was talking about these children in the foster care system and what they experience in the worst case scenarios. He talked about abuse, um, neglect, you know, these are orphaned children, and some of them end up being trafficked and in some cases even sexually exploited in, in, a in the child sex trafficking industry. And when you think about how vulnerable they are, it really does make sense. This is a bipartisan issue, of course, but Senator John Ossoff, I thought, said it well, is that we have a moral imperative to figure out how to care for these children the best way possible. And if you think about the statistics he just raised about how many children are missing, how many children we know have gone into or experienced the sex trade through foster care, it's quite alarming, it's quite um, awful. Right, seven, he said uh, 1,790 at least um, were reported missing in the Georgia DFAC system between 2018 and 2022. That's according to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And the DFACS, just to clarify, is um, Georgia's Department of um, Children and fi Family Services, basically their family services department. And something else we're looking at here that Asaf pointed to is the response of DFACS to allegations made by OCA, the, this watchdog body that he mentioned, about systemic threats and the fact that when those reports were made in 2022, DFACS responded with denial. Mm -hmm. And um, so we're, we're needing to look really at what's behind, lift, lift up the hood and just see what's going on here with this. We need more accountability, of course, but hopefully this is a start. Right. And, you know, these kinds of hearings, yeah, expose things. They, they like you said, lift the lid and um, lead to legislation. 
um, that can make a difference. Now, this, is, this, this hearing is focusing on experts from Georgia as well as um, a young woman who went through the foster care system in Georgia, but this is a national issue. Absolutely. As I mentioned earlier, the uh, cases of reportedly the highest number of abuse, abused children in the foster care system were within California, but it spread all over. The next highest was in Texas, then we saw further down the list, Florida, Illinois, Indiana. These children are, are vulnerable in our midst. That's right. And you know, child sex trafficking, it's, there's, there's a debate about whether or not even, it, it even exists, but there's a gentleman named, the, uh, named Tim Ballard and his organization, Operation Underground Railroad. They, they free thousands of children. Um, they've th freed thousands of children from the child sex trafficking industry by conducting these sting operations where they go in and they pretend to be customers and then they, yeah, like I was saying before, rake in the arrests. Yeah, it's um, incredible work and an incredible film, The Sound of Freedom, worth seeing. That's right. All right, we'll have more on the Senate hearing titled Cha Time Change, Abuse in the Foster Care System, a deeper look after the break. Thank you for staying with us. We are tuned into a Senate hearing on abuse in the foster care system. It's hosted by the Subcommittee on Human Rights and the Law, part of the Senate Committee on the Judiciary, presided over by John Ossoff, a Democrat from Georgia. And uh, we did hear earlier from Senator Ossoff talking about what he called a the moral imperative of fixing, fixing this system and looking after the most vulnerable of children within our society. Uh, we also heard about the attitude of the foster care system, their response, or in particular DFACS, which is the body within Georgia, and their response to allegations of systemic um, flaws within the system. The o OCA, a watchdog group, had identified 15 systemic breakdowns that they termed as systemic uh, in 2022. And so these allegations are quite recent. They're presumably active and still uh, unresolved. And we're looking forward to hearing some of the recommendations from these witness experts uh, coming up. But right. right, and Senator Ossoff was talking about the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which reported that between 2018 and 2022, 17, at least 1,790 children were reported missing in the Georgia Department of Family and Children's Services there um, in Georgia. Uh, we're ready to tune back into the hearing. Let's take a listen. I was physically abused and neglected by my adopted parent and sexually abused by a family friend. My adopted parents were involved in 23 Child Protective Services report. While living in Michigan, at one point I was removed from my adopted parent and placed in foster care. We had moved to Georgia in 2019, but that but the abuse did not end there. One day I told a teacher that I was afraid to go home, and they called defects. A case manager came out to our home and asked me a question. 
right in front of my parents. I was afraid I would get in trouble, so I said everything was okay. But no one protected me. I tried to protect myself. I tried to run away and try to fight back. Anything I could to escape. I was arrested for trying to protect myself from my father's abuse. He was never arrested, and defects said that I was the problem. No one listened to me, no one believed me. When I was put in foster care, defects didn't believe that I had been abused or neglected, even after I told them. To them, I was unruly, a runaway, and a behavior problem. I was in defects custody until I was 18. While in defects custody, I experienced abuse, medical neglect, educational neglect, and was even sexually assaulted in traffic. I moved placements more than 20 times. I was put in group homes, detention centers, and foster homes, like Monet. I was in, I was at death row for nearly eight months. I was there. I don't remember my case manager coming to see me once in person. Like Monet, I remember the barbed wire fence being over-medicated, but put in isolation. I remember staff forcing my pants down and forcing me to get a shot on my bottom and then feeling drowsy. They treated me like I wasn't human. I was placed in a few different group homes that were supposed to be safe house for girls who was trafficked. At one of these placements, I witnessed a staff fighting with the other girls at home, staff smoking marijuana and not being allowed to go to school in person. Not for my protection, but to protect group homes and staff other children. Staff would call me and the other girls the B word one time. I even heard the staff call other girls in the home a slut. When I was 18, I signed myself out of care, but then find out I was pregnant. I called my case manager to tell her to get what I needed to prepare myself for motherhood. For example, Defects still had my social security card and birth certificate. I needed information about transportation. My son was born premature and was in the NICU for three weeks. Foster care left me without, house, without housing or, in, or assistance. I needed to take care of myself and my child. I wanted a better life for my son, so I called Defects and signed back into care. Defects couldn't find a placement for us. So my son and I had to spend the first six weeks of his life in the emergency shelter. Then I was placed in a group home for teen moms. A staff member falsely accused me for neglecting my son, and DFAX took him from me for a month. The court ordered DFAX to find a placement for me and my son to be together, and if they couldn't find somewhere for us that I get to see him three times a week, but I didn't get to see him three times a week and we weren't placed together. For a month, three bonds was broken. The bond between the mother and the child, the bond we were building for the first three months of his life while I was breastfeeding, the bond created through skin to skin and other interactions important for his development. Instead, defects tried to force me to sign myself out of foster care and kept me and my child apart. 
After one month of being apart, my son returned to me. The court found that DFAS did not have any evidence that I was abusing or neglecting my son. During all of this, DFAS was neglecting me since I signed myself back into care. I had been asking for therapy to help, my, help me with the past and trauma and postpartum depression. I asked to see a doctor for infections I had related to past abuse in my pregnancy. I had an infection caused by pieces of leftover placenta. I didn't see an OBGYN until more than six months after giving birth to my son. Despite how defects has treated me, I'm still here because I have to focus on what is best for my son. I'm working on getting my GED and planning on going to nursing school. Because I have an attorney in CASA who will fight for me and listen to me and believe me. My son and I are now living in a foster home where we feel safe and supported. I have a new case manager who listened to me and asked me what I need for the first time since I was 15. I hope. I have hope. A hope through my testimony of the children won't have to go through it, through what I went through. Thank you. We are tuned in to the Senate hearing titled Time Change, Abuse in Foster Care, A Deeper Look. Uh, we just heard from Tiffany McLean Camp, a 19-year-old who has experience in Georgia's foster care system, and she shared her moving story with us. Oh, it's heart-wrenching. I feel I teared up a little bit there. Mm. I can't imagine such a horrific experience and at such a young age mm. and for so long. That point when she spoke about her, her son and losing contact with him when DFAX took him away mm. and losing the, the, the ability to bond with her son in the first few months of his life. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and the, the, she said the court didn't find any sign that, that she was abusing her son, but still DFAX kept them apart. Right. She, she, her story, you know, goes back to you know, when she was a kid. She was abused and neglected by her adopted parents and then placed in foster care where she was, con she continued to be abused. When she reported this to um, her teachers in school, the Georgia Department of Family and Child Services uh, came to the house to see if anything was going wrong and she, she lied to them because or she didn't. She didn't say anything to them because um, she didn't want to to be, you know, uh, yeah, have any problems with the foster parents. And when you look at what uh, what she said happened was that they asked her in front of her adoptive parents. So of course, I mean, to me, that's a an obvious indication that the child may feel too intimidated to say what's really going on at that point. But mm -hmm. it, it is perhaps an indication of the kind of uh, quality of investigations that, that are going on mm. within the system. That, that's right. And there's also, you know, she was moved more than 20 times um, in, in the span of a few years, you know, never really settling. I mean, I, I haven't moved, I didn't move once when I was growing up. And I, I know that if I had moved one time, it would have been, it would have been a lot for any kid. And this is a, a young woman without, without uh, her parents, uh, or any real guardians aside from the state um, being moved 20 times over the span of a few years and just yeah and it does get complicated you know she by her own admission she she was labeled as unruly and she became a runaway and it was you know she, it, she was kind of 
cast as having behavior problems, but of course there would have been displays of dysfunction coming from her, but it's just heartbreaking to see the many ways that she was positioned, of course, uh, affected by that and, and into this kind of behavior as well. Um, but some of the discussions of the ongoing issues are just really eye-opening of, of uh, even within the safe houses for, for women who've escaped from sexual exploitation and all of that, it's just really un, unexpected, to be honest. <laughs> right, and that's right. And we also heard in a previous hearing um, a week or two ago <clears throat> about uh, a woman who was arrested and her two-year-old daughter was put into foster care. She recommended to the system that her daughter be put into the care of people she knew who were certified foster parents. Instead, she was put into the care of her biological father, mm -hmm. the daughter's biological father, and his girlfriend who was addicted to methamphetamines with a history of child abuse. The woman raised awareness, raised the issue with the, with the, with the Department of Family Services there, and they basically ignored her. So it speaks to some of the problems going on there in the foster system in Georgia. All right, this concludes our coverage of the Senate hearing on titled Time Change, Abuse in the Foster Care System. We'll have more news after the break. Former President Trump on the witness stand in his New York civil fraud trial. What did Trump say about the case, and was he involved in company decisions? New evidence against Hamas. Israel's military is publishing footage showing where Hamas placed its command center and where they fire rockets from, hoping Israel won't fire back. A shocking study, sensitive personal data of U.S. service members is being sold online. What's out there? and why a lawmaker says it's a huge security vulnerability. Ukraine is dealing with rumors of an alleged stalemate in its war against Russia. This comes as Russia tests nuclear-capable weapons. Ties warming between China and Australia. Australia's Prime Minister meets with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. What did they say about the future? The Kansas City Chiefs win big in Frankfurt. The defending Super Bowl champs meet the Miami Dolphins in the NFL's debut game in Germany. Former President Trump taking the stand today in the New York civil fraud trial. The judge is determining a penalty after previously ruling Trump inflated his net worth. The $250 million lawsuit threatens Trump's family business in New York. Here's former President Trump before entering the courtroom. So while uh, Israel is being attacked, while Ukraine is being attacked, while inflation is eating our country alive, I'm down here, and these are all political opponent attack ads by the Biden administration. This is really election interference, and so this is traveling ridiculous. The numbers are much greater than on the financial statement. And we've already proven that. They said Mar-a-Lago's worth $18 million. Mar-a-Lago's worth anywhere from probably 50 to 100 times more than that. And it's a terrible, terrible thing. This is for third world countries. And 
You know, it's very unfair. It's very unfair. But in the meantime, the people of the country understand it. They see it. And they don't like it. They don't like it. Because it's uh, political warfare, as you would call it, or political lawfare. At trial, Trump was asked about his responsibility in preparing a 2014 financial statement for his company. He testified that his role was to provide information. He also said if he wanted to build up the statement, he would have added brand value, which would add tens of millions of dollars. He said some things were overvalued, but some were undervalued. Trump was also asked why he put his son, Donald Trump Jr., back in charge of the Trump Organization in 2021. The younger Trump was also in charge of it during the presidency. Trump said after the presidency, he was still involved in politics, so he handed off the reins again. He added he would make occasional suggestions on financial documents. Trump criticized New York Attorney General Letitia James on social media yesterday and called Judge Arthur Engeron a Democrat operative judge. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is wrapping up a grueling Middle East tour in Turkey this morning. The weekend trip took him from Israel to Jordan, the, the West Bank, Syri Cyprus, and Iraq. He did not call for a ceasefire despite pressure from Arab groups. Here's what the Secretary of State said before leaving Turkey. We remain very focused on the hostages held by Hamas, including Americans in making sure we're doing everything possible to bring them home. We've uh, engaged the Israelis on steps that they can take to minimize civilian casualties. We're working, as I said, very aggressively on getting more humanitarian assistance into Gaza. We don't obviously agree on, on everything, but there are common views on some of the imperatives of the moment that we're working on together. Lincoln met with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas after meeting with other key Middle Eastern leaders in Jordan over the weekend. The meeting with Abbas was described as tense when the U.S. Secretary of State refused to call for a ceasefire. He's instead opting for a shorter humanitarian pause, which he says would allow more aid into Gaza and allow civilians to get out. For analysis of Blinken's whirlwind trip to the Middle East, I spoke with international military strategist and retired Colonel Darren Gobb. Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you for joining us again. On Sunday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Israel, Jordan, and Ramallah, the, the de facto capital of the West Bank. From what you saw, what was the main intent of this trip? Yeah, yeah thanks, Chris. It's good to be joining you again. And from what I could understand of this trip, which is always seems to be a challenge, he's trying to really avoid having this conflict grow bigger. And we've seen it already creep into the northern part of Israel and in uh, Lebanon, and specifically Hezbollah. And as we grow our forces around the region, I think he's really trying to do whatever he can to um, show solidarity to an Israeli United States, keep it from growing bigger than it, than it necessarily needs to be, and specifically keep the larger state actors out of it, like Iran, like your Jordan, maybe Saudi Arabia and others. So uh, we'll see where it goes. I'm not confident that his message is being well received, though. Okay. And while he was there, he made an unannounced trip to Iraq. What's the significance of this move during this sort of whirlwind trip he made to the Middle East? Well, first of all, I think one of the things we got to remind ourselves is, is we have U.S. soldiers and, and other service members throughout Syria and Iraq still. In Iraq, we're there at the government's invitation. In Syria, we are not. 
but we're there anyways. And so I think he's trying to make sure he talks to these national leaders and about the fact that our forces are there, that they're at risk, and making sure that uh, even though the best answer is to take them out and bring them home, that uh, they've accounted for their security within within the, the Iraqi armed forces. Uh, look at Turkey as an example with uh, Interlick Air Base and the crowds coming at the American base there. That could easily happen to their bases all across the Middle East. And as Israel retaliates against Hamas, you know, tensions are obviously rising, like you've been saying, in the Middle East. Um, we're hearing reports of violence in the, the, the West Bank. What's going on there? Well, this is expected growth of a sort when it comes to what started in Gaza going into the West Bank through people who are sympathetic to what's happening to Gaza specifically. Uh, aligning with uh, the Palestinians and Hamas or wherever their sympathies lie. So the West Bank is a natural result, or any violence there is a natural result of what's going on in Gaza and then also to the north in Lebanon and, and uh, Miquelon Heights region. Blinken, while he was there, hinted at the Palestinian Authority playing a role in Gaza's future if Hamas is defeated. What is the Palestinians, Palestinian Authority's track record? Well, their track record's terrible. Uh, they've sacrificed the people in the Gaza Strip in pursuit of a fundamentalist religious aim of destroying Israel in whatever means they can. So I hope in the end that Israel will recognize that once they've you know, dealt with the threat, and specifically Hamas in Gaza, that uh, Gaza does not go back to any kind of United Nations control or any kind of uh, Arab nations conglomerate control, but just becomes part of Israel, because the, uh, the the Hamas and specifically the Palestinian Authority, most of whose leadership doesn't actually even live in the Gaza Strip, uh, have removed everything they possibly could, and they are actually the prison guards in Gaza, not the Israelis. All right, Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you very much. The Israeli military now releasing footage appearing to show tunnels used by Hamas. Israel says the tunnels are located beneath two hospitals in northern Gaza and that Hamas uses them as command centers and rocket launchers. Here's the Israeli military on Sunday commenting on an earlier interview with a Hamas senior official. I ask a simple question. If you build bomb shelters in these tunnels, why don't you allow the civilians to use them? They're suffering above ground. It's dangerous. Musa Abu Mazouk, a Hamas senior, he says, well, we've built the tunnels for ourselves, for our, for Hamas, for the combatants, and the civilians, the 2.3, 2.4 million Gazan civilians, they're above ground, and they're the responsibility of the UN. Israel presented these videos, photographs, and audio recordings. Officials say it demonstrates the Hamas strategy of using hospitals as cover and preventing civilians from leaving combat zones. They say Hamas launches rockets from hospitals, hoping Israel can't or won't retaliate. The U.S. military says a guided missile submarine has arrived in the Middle East. Central Command shared this picture, which appears to show the sub in the Suez Canal, northeast of Cairo. Since announcements like this are rare, it seems the military is sending a message that the U.S. does not want the Israel-Hamas war to expand. Usually these subs operate in near-complete secrecy. 
This one joins two U.S. carrier strike groups and an amphibious ready group already in the area. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson commenting on urgently needed aid for Israel. The House recently passed a funding bill that allocates money to Israel by cutting spending for the IRS. Democrats say they're against the bill. President Biden announced he would veto it. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer calls the bill deeply flawed, saying it's not a serious proposal. Here's Johnson on Fox News responding to that. It's really surprising to hear Senator Schumer say that it's not a serious uh, proposal. It's exactly what was requested, $14.5 billion. What they don't like is that in the House, we're trying to be good stewards of the taxpayers' resources. We offset that spending. Instead of printing new dollars and or borrowing it from another nation to send over to fulfill our obligations and help our ally, we want to pay for it. What a concept. The White House and Senate Democrats have insisted on linking Israel and Ukraine aid. House Republicans staunchly oppose the idea of funding both countries together. The Senate is already working on a bill of its own. That bill would secure funding for both Israel and Ukraine, as opposed to the House bill, which only funds Israel and cuts IRS spending. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham on Sunday told CNN he is in favor of funding both countries. I am for Ukraine uh, support. We can't pull the plug on Ukraine, let Putin get away with this. There goes Taiwan if you do that. I'm definitely for Israel. So I think you'll see a package of border security, funding for Ukraine, funding for Israel coming out of the Senate, probably as one package. I would support that. President Biden previously proposed a funding bill which would include multiple issues. Funding for Israel and Ukraine, money allocated to the southern border here in the U.S. and more. In total, that proposal comes to over $100 billion. Coming up, what's at stake in Virginia's state elections tomorrow? President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris endorsed nearly two dozen candidates running for office. Another U.S. bank fails. Find out why it failed, how consumers are affected. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. The stakes are high in Virginia elections tomorrow. President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have endorsed nearly two dozen candidates. All 40 state Senate seats and 100 state House seats are up for grabs this year. A handful of competitive districts are expected to make the difference. Northern Virginia near Washington, D.C., Central Virginia near Richmond, and Southeast Virginia. In 2021, Republicans won a 52 to 48 majority in the House of Delegates. The GOP also swept every statewide office. Democrats hold a 22 to 17 majority in the state Senate. Republicans hope to gain full control of the state legislature. That would clear a path, a path for Governor Glenn Youngkin to enact his agenda. Louisiana, Mississippi, and New Jersey are also electing state-level politicians in a general election tomorrow. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been trying to gain more traction in the race for the GOP presidential nomination, and he could receive a critical endorsement at an Iowa rally tonight. The DeSantis campaign announced on X yesterday that Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds will be at the event in Des Moines. The New York Post cited an unnamed source who said Reynolds plans to endorse DeSantis. With 10 weeks until the Iowa caucus, former President Donald Trump currently leads the GOP field by a huge margin. 
And amidst all of this, a New York Times poll shows Trump now has a big lead over Biden in almost every battleground state. We spoke with Mike Leon, host of the podcast, Can We Please Talk, for his insights on this and more. Mike, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. To begin with, Trump has apparently gained a big lead against Biden in the polls. What do you think are some of the key factors here? Hey, Stefania, thank you so much for having me on the program. You know, there's so much uh, with respect to this because we're starting to see two wars playing out right now that the Biden administration has to account for with what's happening in the Middle East and what's happening in Ukraine. A new speaker of the House right now that obviously uh, President Trump uh, likes and has backed, right? Um, and so I think there are a lot of issues that are playing out that are leading to uh, this in terms of the polls. You know, we've had a few Republican strategists on our program over at Can We Please Talk? And all of them have said similar things with respect to the messaging aspect part of this, right? Um, the former President Trump is out there saying, and he just said it here at an event in Florida in Kissimmee, that, hey, there was no wars under my administration. We didn't have anything of this nature. Now, obviously, pandemic outside of it. But other than that, we didn't have any foreign conflicts. And that is true, you know, fortunately for him. And so he's running against that right now. President Biden has so many things that are popping up foreign policy-wise that are starting to come back home to roost for him, unfortunately. And in terms of Trump's legal woes, he's right in the thick of it right now. How do you think the media's coverage could be influencing public's, public opinion here? Well, you know, that's a great question because it's some of the things that we've dissected on the show. We've had so many former DOJ officials, so many uh, former prosecutors and defense attorneys kind of talking about the legalities of this and where this will net out. I, I saw former Governor Asa Hutchinson say something at that same event about he thinks that the former president, before you even start voting in the Florida primary, could already be uh, found guilty of some of these charges. So the question now becomes, as these polls continue to come out from a national perspective and as we get closer to Iowa in January, the question will be, are voters going to be swayed by seeing the former president in court? That's one. Two, actually being found guilty by a jury of his peers of some of these crimes. Now, so far, according to the polling in the Republican primary, if you look at Morning Consult or any other polling uh, agency, all of them have a pre former President Trump up by at least, you know, 35, 40 percentage points. So it hasn't really swayed Republican primary voters. On the national level, that New York Times poll is really alarming. And even as I'm watching CNN in the background here, you can tell that there, there's a little bit of worry about how that national poll is translating to independents and moderates across the Democratic base, because that is going to be the big key right now. Former President Trump, uh, the charges, sometimes it seems to folks are a little bit politicized, especially the New York one, but it hasn't really translated into this losing support. Will it translate once an actual charge uh, he's found guilty of something like that? We're going to wait and find out. But so far, it's been working in his favor. Right. And you mentioned the primaries where we're still in that process. And recently in the headlines, we've seen um, the conflict between DeSantis and Trump having their turf war. What kind of implications could that have on the Republican Party and on the election, do you think? Well, you know, and I go back to this morning consult poll that, that recently happened back on October 29th, where it almost 4,000 registered Republicans. And the former president is up 61 to 13, 48 percentage points on former Governor DeSantis. And I've said this before on other outlets and even with our show, that Governor DeSantis's platform right now is just not translating nationally. And I think it's because while he's trying to appease some of the base that former President Trump has, he's not doing it the correct way. 
he's fighting all of these different issues uh, with respect to woke ideology and some of these other things that people in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, the first three primaries, typically don't care about. They want to learn more about the economic woes that they're having right now, right? Everybody talks about these same food on the table uh, and making sure my kids are learning the right things, right? Learning uh, how to think, not what to think, like all these different phrases. And the governor's not focusing on that. I've mentioned this before here in Florida, where I live in Miami, the governor has increased teacher pay, where teacher pay is really competitive in the state, but it's something that he doesn't mention from a messaging standpoint. And I think former President Trump right now is resting on the stuff that he did during his administration, which is no new wars, right? We're not fighting any conflicts. And so he's using that message against President Biden. And against Ron DeSantis, he's up by so much because DeSantis is not cutting to the core of some of these issues that voters are really facing right now. And I think DeSantis really needs to pivot his messaging more towards the everyday issues that Americans are fighting, not the culture war stuff that he's fought here in Florida. Thank you so much, Mike Leon, host of the podcast, Can We Please Talk? Thank you so much, Stefania. A new study shows sensitive personal information of U.S. military personnel is for sale online. That, inf that information can include home addresses and health conditions. The study was published Monday by Duke University researchers. It found that the data of thousands of active duty U.S. military personnel can be bought cheaply from so-called data brokers. Researchers were able to stop for shop for data on service members based on geolocation that included whether the service members lived or worked near Fort Bragg, Quantico, or other sensitive military locations. The data could be bought for as little as 12 cents a service member, and there were no background checks on purchasers. Senator Ron Wyden called the study, quote, a sobering wake-up call for policymakers that the data broker industry is out of control and possesses, poses a serious threat to U.S. national security. President Biden will announce the latest federal funding to modernize key portions of the nation's busiest rail corridor. Over $16 billion will go to 25 passenger rail projects on Amtrak's Northeast Corridor. The route stretches from Boston to Washington, D.C. and supports about 800,000 trips daily. The money will help rebuild tunnels and bridges that are over 100 years old. Track upgrades, power systems, signals and stations are also priorities. $3.8 billion will go to the Hudson River Tunnel between New York and New Jersey. The Frederick Douglass Tunnel will receive $4.7 billion. Monday's event marks at least the third time Biden has highlighted funding the Northeast Corridor. As a former writer, the president has expressed a personal connection to Amtrak. Is the U.S. banking crisis really over? Another U.S. bank has failed. On Friday, Citizens Bank in Sac City, Iowa, was shut down by the government agency, Iowa Division of Banking. Joining us now is NTD Business host Don Ma. Don, tell us more about this situation. Uh, so Citizens Bank is the fifth bank uh, to fail in the U.S. this year. And the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, was put in charge to protect uh, the money of the bank's customers. 
the full balance uh, of all deposit accounts from Citizens Bank in Sac City, Iowa, uh, it has been transferred uh, to another bank, and this bank is called Iowa Trust and Savings Bank. Uh, so this bank will now take care of all the money that was in Citizens Bank uh, to ensure it's safe. So basically, uh, depositors of Citizens Bank uh, will now become de depositors of Iowa Trust and Savings. And in addition to, to that, uh, to, to taking over all the deposits uh, from Citizens Bank, Iowa Trust and Savings Bank also uh, agreed to buy nearly all of its assets as well. So what this means is that they're acquiring uh, things like loan loans, uh, investments, uh, other holdings as well. And the two branches of Citizens Bank will actually reopen uh, as branches of Iowa Trust and Savings Bank today during normal, normal business hours. So, Don, does this bank's failure pose any systemic threat? Well, I don't think so because uh, this bank uh, doesn't have enough assets to pose any threat to the overall U.S. banking system. Uh, Citizens Bank had approximately uh, $66 million in total assets and $59 million in total deposits as of September 30th. The FDIC estimates that the cost uh, to the deposit insurance fund will be $14.8 uh, million. Uh, now, this would be a different story if uh, Citizens Bank had uh, somewhere around a billion dollars, but it does not have that. And at the same time, I think the Federal Reserve would not let a bank fail that had uh, any systemic, systemic risk. So, you know, we would probably see the central bank bailing them out if that were the case. What led to this failure in the first place, Don? So what we know right now for sure is that the bank uh, incurred uh, significant loan losses. Uh, but you know, as for what those loans are exactly, it's hard to know for sure. But I, I think a number of different things could, could have been. But one that seems to be getting some attention is that the bank could have had too much exposure to bad trucking loans. Uh, it's possible that the bank was uh, making loans on very expensive trucks, uh, which would have been highly speculative. Uh, but you know, regardless, the last two years have been very difficult for the trucking industry. Uh, trucking companies, uh, large and small, have been going out of business. Too much supply, not enough demand, too many trucks uh, chasing too little freight. And I'll, I'll just say one more thing. Uh, even though it seems like bank failures are a big deal. They're, they actually happen uh, pretty often. All right. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. And check your freezer. Tyson Foods is recalling about 30,000 pounds of chicken nuggets. The company said it was voluntarily pulling the nuggets after some people reported finding small pieces of metal inside the patties. Specifically, the recall is for the 29-ounce plastic bag packages containing frozen but fully cooked breaded nuggets that are shaped like chicken patties. Mm. The packaging includes a best-used-by date of September 4, 2024. The chicken was sold in a number of states, including California, Illinois, Michigan, Tennessee, and Virginia. The USDA says there has been one minor oral injury associated with eating the nuggets. When we come back, soldiers on the Ukrainian front are fighting against exhaustion as the war drags on. How did the country's president respond to claims the war is at a stalemate? Search and rescue continues in Nepal in the aftermath of its worst earthquake in eight years. 
death toll now tops 150. And in South Korea, a K-pop star is under investigation for illegal drug use. He's the latest in a line of South Korean artists involved in high-profile narcotics cases. We have more on that when we return. Thank you for staying with us. A battle ex against exhaustion on the Ukrainian front as the war drags into a second winter. Soldiers in the trenches say they need to find strength. Here's more. Ukraine's counteroffensive has slowed and its troops are facing exhaustion as the conflict with Russia enters its second winter. Ukraine's commander-in-chief, Valery Zaluzhny, described a stalemate on the battlefield, though he worried that a protracted, attritional war would favor Russia. The stark assessment coincides with the advent of seasonal rains, which makes it harder to advance over muddy ground. Only new capabilities, including more supplies from Western allies, as well as locally produced drones, would tip the balance back in Ukrainian favor, Zaluzhny said. In the Serebrenyansky forest in the Luhansk region, which is largely occupied by Russians, this soldier barely gets any sleep. His call sign is Isterik. We had a firefight for over 20 hours, non-stop fighting, assaults, evacuations, and you know, I managed it, and we all managed it. We aren't very fresh, and right now, we need to find strength. Similar battles are raging along the front lines, from the border with Russia's Belgorod region in the northeast, all the way down to the Black Sea. For those in the trenches, while exhaustion is unavoidable, motivation remains strong. This is a horrible enemy. The enemy is strong, cunning and vile, and they deal us considerable losses. One should never underestimate them. If they will be or already have been provided with a million shells, this will drastically influence the situation in terms of losses. Would they be able to advance with that number of shells? I am not sure that the advance will be considerable. We've learned how to defend, and as we see, they have learned how to defend too. Having focused on defense earlier in the year, Ukraine launched a counteroffensive in June that aims at cutting Russia's supply lines by pushing south towards the Sea of Azov. Five months on, that objective remains a distant dream. Ukrainian forces are about 50 miles from the coast, and Russian defences have largely held firm. Russia, meanwhile, has kept up its bombardment of Ukraine, using drones and missiles. The Kremlin calls its operation a targeted military campaign, though it has killed thousands of civilians, and knocked out infrastructure vital for heating, power and transport, as this Ukrainian soldier puts it. This period of war is the fight of characters. We are exhausted, they are exhausted, but there are more of them and they have more equipment. That's the hard part and also the lack of people. And next up, more updates from Europe. First, the war between Russia and Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky was on NBC rejecting claims that the conflict has reached a dead end. I don't think that this is a stalemate. They thought that they would checkmate us, but this didn't happen. And on the, other, on the contrary, we took the initiative in our hands. 
He also called on the U.S. to supply Ukraine with more weapons. This comes amid disagreements in Congress. Republicans want to first fund Israel, then check on Ukraine. Democrats want to support both countries at the same time. And in the same interview, Zelensky also pushed against former U.S. President Trump's claims that he could bring peace between Russia and Ukraine in just 24 hours if re-elected. Zelensky invited Trump to visit Ukraine to address the ongoing war between the countries. He said that Trump couldn't bring about peace without agreeing to give up Ukrainian territory to Russia. He added that he has not spoken to the former president since he left office in 2021. At the same time, Russia is testing nuclear-capable weapons. This comes just days after Putin withdrew from an international treaty that bans live nuclear tests. Russia launched a nuclear-capable ballistic missile. The country used its newest submarine for that. The test was launched in the White Sea. That's the European side of the Arctic coast. The missile hit its target thousands of miles away in Kamchatka, which is closer to Alaska. Russia may have a chance to rejoin the Olympics. The Court of Arbitration for Sports is taking up an appeal by the Russian Olympic Committee. The International Olympic Authority previously subpoenaed Russia because it started claiming some Ukrainian sports organizations as its own. The Court of Arbitration for Sport will now make a final decision unless either group appeals to the Swiss Federal Tribunal. In Israel, former prime ministers from the UK and Australia are visiting. The two visited a kibbutz which was devastated by Hamas militants in the October 7th attacks. The UK's Boris Johnson said the attacks might suggest that the memory of the Holocaust is starting to fade. If people could see the evidence that, that I've just seen and that the Scott has just seen, what they would see is the absolutely incontrovertible evidence of families in the, in the last extremity of, uh, of uh, suffering and fear and they're completely innocent, trying to protect themselves against brutal, brutal killers. Those expressions of hate and against Jewish people, this is what it becomes, what we are seeing around us here today. That's why it can't be tolerated in its, in its most smallest form because it starts as a, as a mustard seed and it grows into, into this horror. Johnson said the world, the world needs to recognize that a massive crime has been committed by Hamas and that Israel now has to find the perpetrators and to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. Germany's Hamburg airport is open again after a hostage standoff involving a child. Police arrested a 35-year-old man and rescued a 4-year-old girl. She's the daughter of the suspect and is thought to be involved in a custody dispute. Police said the man, who was suspected of carrying a gun and possibly explosives, drove through the gates of the airport on Saturday night. The suspect eventually got out of his car with his daughter, police said, and was arrested without resistance. The girl appeared to be unharmed. The incident shut down one of Germany's busiest aviation hubs and raised concerns over security at the airport. Less than four months ago, climate activists breached barriers and got onto a runway, blocking planes from taking off. A painting in London targeted by protesters about a century after it was first slashed by a suffragette. 
Two protesters from the climate change protest group Just Stop Oil smashed the glass cover of the painting. The 17th century painting, the Rokeby Venus by Diego Velazquez, was damaged by the suffragette Mary Richardson in 1914 when a leader of the movement was arrested. Today, the two protesters at London's National Gallery shouted, Just Stop Oil! and claimed millions would die due to new oil and gas licenses. In July, the government said more than 100 new oil and gas licenses in the North Sea would be granted. New approvals are expected to come out tomorrow. And now, some top news from Asia. Beijing and Canberra are mending ties after years of diplomatic strain. Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping welcomed Australian Prime Minister Anthony, Anthony Albanese. He's the first Australian leader to visit Beijing since 2016. Albanese said a strong relationship with China will be beneficial into the future. She also said it was essential to move forward with strategic ties. The meeting is their second face-to-face -face meeting in a year. In recent years, China has blocked Australian products, including wine, barley and beef. That was over issues ranging from security concerns to the origin of COVID. U.S. officials talked up the potential for agricultural trade with China while attending a trade fair in Shanghai. That's despite ongoing political strains between the world's two largest economies. U.S. Ambassador to China Nicholas Burns cut a ribbon to open the event. This was the first time the U.S. has participated since it began in 2018. Burns reiterated that Washington was not seeking to decouple from China. We seek to move forward in two-way trade between the United States and China. Now, we are de-risking altering supply chains in critical materials and minerals in some cases, but that's because that's the smart thing to do post-pandemic. And of course, China has been de-risking as well. Visitors sampled food products sourced from the U.S. A senior trade and agricultural official said China is a top market for U.S. agricultural products. Oil, seed and grains are the biggest U.S. export to China, accounting for over $25 billion last year. But Brazil has been eating into the U.S. share of the Chinese market, following bumper soybean and corn harvests. More on U.S.-China dialogue. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is set to host China's vice premier for two days this week. The U.S. says it's not a policy meeting, but about stabilizing the relationship between the two economies. It will involve new economic forums launched in October, led by the U.S. Treasury and China's finance ministry and central bank. Yellen is expected to urge Beijing against flooding markets. Such practices include using massive industrial subsidies and shutting U.S. companies out of domestic markets. The meeting comes just days before the U.S.-hosted APEC summit in San Francisco next week. Over in Japan, authorities are getting prepared amid growing concerns over North Korea's missile test launches. Tokyo held an evacuation drill today to help residents pre prepare. Around 60 residents took part in the drill. One of the groups simulated an evacuation scenario inside a subway train station. The drill came after growing demands by the government. North Korea fired 59 missiles in 2022. The regime most recently fired 
two short-range ballistic missiles into the sea on September 13th. North Korea has missiles ranging from short-range and cruise missiles to ICBMs with a potential range to reach the continental United States. And in South Korea, K-pop star G-Dragon appeared today for police questioning over allegations of illegal drug use. This marks the latest in a string of South Korean artists embroiled in high-profile narcotics cases. The investigation comes amid a crackdown on drugs by the government of President Yoon suk Yeol. G-Dragon is the frontman for the K-pop band named Big Bang. The 35-year-old singer denied any wrongdoing and said he came to clear any suspicion against him. The star of the Oscar-winning film Parasite, Lee Sun Kyun, was also questioned over the weekend on a separate allegation of illegal drug use. Lee also declined to answer questions as he left the police station. In Nepal, rescuers are looking for people who could still be trapped in the rubble of a collapsed building following the country's worst earthquake in eight years. The death toll is now over 150. Rescuers continued to search for survivors in the rubble of collapsed buildings on Monday as the scale of the damage caused by Nepal's worst earthquake in eight years became clear. Since Friday's quake, thousands of buildings in Jharkhand and the neighboring Rukum West district have collapsed or developed cracks, making them uninhabitable. Nepal police spokesperson Kuba Kadiat said authorities would keep looking for survivors, then quickly address relief and rehabilitation for affected families. The government treats the injured free of charge. In Kathmandu, the government said it would make immediate arrangements for shelter, food and safety for displaced families and provide $1,500 to the families of each of those killed as immediate relief. Some survivors in Kyuri, who belong to the untouchable Dalit community, according to Nepal's Hindu customs, said no government representative had yet visited or offered help. Survivors said they heard loud noises of collapsing buildings soon after the quake struck. The quake had a magnitude of 6.4, according to Nepal's National Seismological Center, while the U.S. Geological Survey measured it at 5.6. It was the country's deadliest since 2015. Then, some 9,000 people were killed by two quakes that reduced whole towns and centuries-old temples to rubble and destroyed more than a million homes at a cost of at least $6 billion. Coming up, five schools around the globe are awarded for their innovative ways of supporting students, like teaching them how to vote and bridging ethnic divides. A new record time is set at the New York City Marathon. 50,000 runners participated in the race through all of the city's five boroughs. A new record in Florida, a man has become the fastest to eat 25 stone crab claws. How long did it take him? More shortly here on NTD News Today. Five schools celebrated at the world's best school prizes. Their accomplishments were recognized for promoting unity, community service, and mental health awareness. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on their extracurricular achievements. A global network of educators called T4 Education launched the event last year. The Max Rain Hand-in-Hand -hand Jerusalem School won the Overcoming Adversity Prize. 
Lessons are taught in both Hebrew and Arabic to more than 600 students. The school was established in 1998 by parents who did not accept the separation between Jews and Arabs in the education system in Israel. Our students they have two teachers in the classroom that supports their mother tongue, but also allows them to learn the other language. The Community Collaboration Prize went to Spark Soweto in South Africa. The institution was recognized for teaching students how to vote. We saw a gap with a decline in the voting in South Africa, and we thought it would be a great concept to teach our scholars on how to vote. And we then asked the Independent Electoral Commission, and they were keen to come to the school and do voting. Colombia's Institución Educativa Montessori won the Environmental Action Prize. Its student program turns coffee waste into eco-friendly products like organic soap. What we look for is that the student determines what is the final disposal of the residue. From there, each student, developing leadership and soft skills by working in a group, determines what is the best product that allows us to reincorporate or renew this byproduct. Brazil's EEMTI Joaquim Bastos Goncalves won the Supporting Healthy Lives Award. The school provides students with access to psychologists. We adopted the project Adopt a Student with online counseling sessions for our students. Carnaval is a fairly impoverished town with no means to have a host of psychologists in the field of mental health. The Innovation Prize went to the Riverside School in India. Its student-centric approach focuses on cultivating empathy and social responsibility. I can is about uh, believing in yourself, it's about student agency, and it is about shifting from teacher told me to I am doing it. The winners shared a $250,000 prize. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Don't underestimate the simple cucumber when it comes to health. It offers a variety of nutritional benefits. Indeed. Here's NTD's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Cucumbers are a low-calorie and high-water content vegetable with abundant nutritional benefits. They are perfect in the warmer months, served as a refreshing food option, but of course they're good any time of year. They offer a variety of advantages such as cholesterol reduction, skin protection, anti-inflammatory properties and immune system enhancement. The first nutrient of cucumbers is water, which consists of 95% of a cucumber's overall mass. Therefore, consuming cucumbers helps to maintain body hydration and preserves the elasticity of skin and tissues. Secondly, cucumbers are a rich source of dietary fibre. They help to aid in promoting normal digestive function, preventing constipation, and help you to feel full. Cucumbers also contain vitamin C, which is a potent antioxidant. It safeguards cells against oxidative stress, enhances immune system function, and supports wound healing and collagen synthesis. Another key nutrient is vitamin K, which is essential for blood clotting and bone health. Potassium is the fifth nutrient found in cucumbers. As an electrolyte, potassium is crucial for heart health and proper nervous system function. Cucumbers also contain trace amounts of selenium. This is an important antioxidant that helps to protect cells from damage. Moreover, cucumbers contain various phytochemicals such as flavonoids and carotenoids. These substances possess antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. They guard and protect the body against the impact of chronic disease. 
For some people, cucumbers might lead to digestive discomfort or gastrointestinal issues. If you have stomach ulcers, acid reflux or digestive problems, you may need to limit or reduce cucumber consumption. Certain medications can interact with cucumbers like some diuretics. If you are taking specific medications, consult your doctor or pharmacist to determine whether cucumber consumption is appropriate. The Kansas City Chiefs held off a Miami Dolphins comeback to claim a 21-14 victory on Sunday. The game was the NFL's first in Frankfurt, Germany. Well, it was big. We, we have this bye week coming up, and there's nothing worse than going into a bye week with, with, with a loss, first of all, and then a 10-hour or 8-hour plane ride on top of that, and uh, that's a, that doesn't lead to a good feeling. You know, these are all learning lessons. This is a... Uh, this is a journey that you go through in the NFL season. And like I've said multiple times before, you know, the idea is to be your best selves. Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes threw for 185 yards and two touchdowns. Brian Cook's fumble recovery for a touchdown just before halftime proved to be the game-winning score. The victory could prove to be a crucial win for playoff seeding tiebreakers with the Dolphins. Dolphins quarterback racked up 193 yards and a touchdown. Dolphin wide receiver and former Chief Tyreek Hill caught eight passes for 62 yards. Miami suffered their third loss of the season. The Dolphins stand at 6-3. and three. The Chiefs are at 7-2. and two. New York City hosted its annual marathon Sunday. 50,000 runners participated in the 26.2-mile race through the city's five boroughs. Ethiopian Tamarat Tola won the marathon, setting a new record time of 2 hours, 4 minutes, and 58 seconds. A Kenyan runner came in second at 2 hours, 6 minutes, and 57 seconds. Fellow Kenyan Helen Obiri won the women's race, finishing in 2 hours, 27 minutes, and 23 seconds. Winners of the men's and women's wheelchair race went to two Swiss runners. An amusing scene in the audience, with some trying to cheer up the athletes in a unique way. This man held up a sign that read, 26.2 miles is nothing compared to marriage. Another one joked, due to inflation, the marathon is now 30.4 miles, but added, just kidding, you're doing amazing. A Chicago man cracked the record for the fastest to eat 25 stone crab claws. This was at the Key Fisheries Crab Eating Contest in the Florida Keys. Scott Millison triumphed over 39 other contestants in the amateur eating competition. Participants received a 30-second penalty for each piece of claw meat left behind. Millicent set a new contest record with a final time of 10 minutes, 17 seconds, beating the previous record of 10 minutes and 23 seconds. No experience professionally in any contest of eating um, and to be able to enjoy stone crab was just a bonus. I think I just cracked the world record for stone crab First place, bringing home the prize, back to Chi-Town. In Florida, stone crabs are considered a renewable resource. They have a remarkable ability to regrow claws that have been harvested. The Florida Keys alone account for roughly half of the state's annual stone crab harvest, which is typically 2 million pounds. Keys Fisheries is the primary stone crab claw processor in Florida and plays a pivotal role in the industry. 
The stone crab harvest season occurs from October 15th to May 1st each year. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with any news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.